2 Peter 3, 11-18. Join me as I read. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace." And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text this morning, we ask You to encourage our hearts as we consider the future. We're grateful for all of Your precious promises to us. We stand on them. We are comforted by them. We hope in them. And Father, exhort us through this text that we would live lives that are reflective of believing those promises regarding the future. That we would be holy and godly. For Your glory we pray. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The main idea of this text that Peter builds out in the rest of the text is found there in verse 11. Would you look at verse 11 with me? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, here it is, what sort of people ought you to be? And that's the title of the message as well as the main idea, what sort of people ought you to be? You know, it sounds like a question primarily. What sort of people ought you to be? But Peter presents this here in the text not so much as a question, but as a statement. What sort of people ought you to be? There's a, a difference that ought to be about us because of the future that Christ promises to us. And so as we look at these texts, we can certainly be encouraged and exhorted. Verse 11 is an introductory phrase. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved. It's picking up what Peter has been explaining in the first half of 2 Peter 3. Consider what Peter has written so far from the first half of this chapter 3. Would you let your eyes fall on the first verse of 2 Peter 3? Now, this is now the second letter that I am reminding you or writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's a favorite word of Peter's, by the way. Let me remind you of this and remind you of this and remind you of this. It's such an important 
spiritual necessity of every believer to be continually reminded of truth and to be reminded of the connections between what we believe and how we live. And so Peter does that so well. Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the the holy prophets and the commands of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he's talking about second coming prophecies. Did Jesus ever teach on the second coming? Of course he did. Matthew 24 is probably one of the best known discourses of Christ on the second coming. We call it the Olivet Discourse. He spoke much about his second coming. And that's what Peter's referring to and how Jesus delivered this information to his apostles and they wrote about it and we receive it from the Gospels and other texts of Scripture. Unfortunately, verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Well, they're, they're really scoffing, aren't they? Scoffers come with scoffing. This is a joke to most people that Christ is going to return at any moment or soon with judgment. Following their own sinful desires. This is the nature of the last days. And what is it that they scoff about? Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? Where's, where's the fulfillment of this promise? Where's the validity of the promise that Jesus says He is going to return bodily as the King, visibly to return and set up His eternal throne on a new heaven and a new earth? And what's their argument? They're, they're going to deny the viability of the promise of God that Jesus will come again and deny all of the events leading up to those, even though they may seem catastrophic and unique. Why? They argue that, verse 4, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's an interesting argument. Christ isn't going to come back. All those things that Jesus said He was going to do and would precede His coming aren't going to happen. Why? Because they've never happened before. Everything's been the same since creation. We don't expect that it will change. We should expect that everything should continue just as it always has continued. That's the the argument of the skeptic in this text. Now that's a pretty foolish argument, isn't it? That's like us saying, well, it's not going to happen because it's never happened before. And so how does Peter answer that skeptical argument? Look what he says in verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. So by that word deliberately, you know right right away that their arguments are not fueled by ignorance. What are their arguments fueled by? Rebellion. They deliberately overlook this fact. They don't want to know the truth. They're like the people in Romans 1 who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to think of God in human form coming as the King to call them into account. Why? Because they love their sin. They suppress the truth in what? Unrighteousness. And so they argue that everything has remained the same Since creation, therefore, everything will continue to remain the same. And therefore, all that is promised in Scripture, but the prophecies of the second coming cannot happen. And what is it that they've deliberately overlooked that Peter says? Here's Peter's rebuttal. Here's Peter's counter-argument. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago 
and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept in the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Did you follow Peter's argument? He says there have been, there have been two unbelievably powerful catastrophic events since the creation of the world. One, God, you remember in the beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was what? Formless and void. It was this blob of formless water as it were. And all of a sudden, the Word of God and the water created order from chaos. The power of God's Word with water created what we know to be the world today. Now that was an intervention, wasn't it? That didn't happen through a random process of self-development. That was an intervention by the Word of God with water. But that's not all. What's the second event that, Paul talk, that Peter talks about? A deliberate intervention by God through His Word and water to what? Flood the earth. And so what we know today is not the pre-flood earth. Not exactly. It was dramatically changed. So Peter just shoots down their argument immediately by saying we have had two amazing interventions by God's power through water. The power of His Word through water. And things haven't always been the same. And so he says, therefore, God through those same means, the power of His Word, but not water this time, it's going to be through what? Fire. He is going to reorder the heavens and the earth as we know it. He's done it before. He will do it again through the power of His Word. Isn't that an incredible argument? It's chilling. It's real. When we can look back, even through scientific evidence, that certainly is lesser authority than the Scriptures. But we look in the Scriptures and we certainly look at the evidence of the world and we see the world isn't the way it's always been. God has powerfully intervened and He will do so again. And so he continues his argument. And he says then, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord will return. The second coming of Christ is certain. And therefore, don't let the passing of much time trouble you or cause you to doubt the second coming or be apathetic about it. Why not? God is the master of time. A thousand years to God is as one day and one day is a thousand years. There's no difference in God's mind for God's ability to scrutinize the details of a day or a thousand years. He captures the same. Those two, those two periods of time the same. He is infinite in His wisdom and His ability to navigate and inter- interact with time. He, he created it. So God is the master of time. The passing of time does not does not cause him to lose track of his of the fulfillment of his promises. And also, God is using this time for a purpose. God allowing many, many years to pass between his, the first advent of His Son and the second advent of His Son is not an accident. Look what He says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. But is what? Is patient. He's patient towards you. 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is there a long period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second? Because God is patient and He loves to save. That's who He is. He's a Savior. So this passing of time is is His opportunity, His work to save people and bring them to repentance. And so, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. Don't doubt it. It's going to come like a thief. It's going to be surprising. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All these, verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about just what he said in verse 10. The heavenly bodies will be burned up. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Since all these things, heaven and earth, will be dissolved, then what sort of people ought we to be? Dissolved. What an interesting word. You see it? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, verse 11. He says that word a few times in the text. Verse 12 again, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What is that word? That's a very interesting word. The heavens and the earth dissolve at the Lord's second coming. It's a present tense participle deriving its time from the context. So he's speaking of the certainty of of what will take place on a future day. This word is the word to loose. That's what it means originally, to loose. This is a helpful contrast. It's the opposite. It's the the exact opposite of the word that we see, for example, in Colossians 1.17, where where it speaks of Christ, who through Him all things, what? are held together. Or Hebrews 1.3, where it says He upholds all things by the word of His power. So do we under, we got to understand here, first of all, the, the power of Christ to sustain all things. By those two texts, Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3, we understand that the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, is literally continuing to speak all things into existence. He's holding them together by the word of His power. He's sustaining the cohesion of everything, of all matter. It's not just that Christ created all things and kind of set it to run on its own. He is sustaining all things second by second. Now we talk about the scientific principle of, of atomic energy and how you have particles in the nucleus of an atom that don't have the kind of charge that should hold them together. But yet they do. Scientists often have called that atomic glue, right? You, you know this. You've heard this often. It's unexplainable other than the fact that Jesus Christ, by His Word, by His power, continues to sustain and hold together all things. So this word dissolved is the exact opposite of that. Meaning, By the Word of God, everything will be loosed. There will be no more sustaining of of matter. It will be loosed. 
God's word is presently doing the, sust- the sustenance of all things. And, and on the, the Lord's return, God's word will undo all things into dissolution. What a, what a, what a powerful concept. And therefore, he will then create a new heaven and a new earth. And so since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Since you are now reminded by Peter and assured of God's future plans, there must be for us a strong connection between our Christian hope and our daily conduct. We're quite familiar with the words of the Apostle John. When you see him, 1 John 3, 1-3, when you see Him, you will be like Him because you will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him, what? Purifies Himself even as He is pure. This is the Apostle's continual exhortation. You have Christian hope in the coming of Christ. Well then, how do we live in the moment? Today. This is the Apostle Peter saying the same thing. So what sort of people ought we to be? Number one, we must be awaiting This is 11-13. through Awaiting people. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? How are we to wait? Peter says in holiness and godliness. Holiness is to be unique people. Uncommon people. Set apart people. We set days apart. Unique, we just had Christmas, we just had New Year's, we have Easter, different things. They're set apart. Sunday is a day set apart to gather as God's people. Well, we're to be people set apart, holy unto the Lord. Consider 1 Peter 2, 12-16, where the Apostle Peter reminds us of, of God's Word to us, you be holy because I am holy. Would you look back there at that text with me? 1 Peter 1, 12 through 16. <clears throat> First Peter 1, 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of former ignorance. Don't live by the desires of your life before Christ. But as He who has called you, who called you into salvation, as He is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy or 1 Peter 2, just turn over one chapter. It says there in verse 4, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word 
as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to then abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. While we're waiting, we're called to be holy. Separate from sin and devoted to God. And that looks like a very practical way of life. We're, and Peter spells this out. We won't, we won't get into all these texts, but he spells this out in the rest of 1 Peter 2 and into 1 Peter 3 and into 1 Peter 4. We then now have a, a unique relationship to how we respond to authority. Government, employers. We'd live, we'd live holy lives as citizens of this nation. Holy lives as workers in the workplace. Holy lives in our marriages, he talks about in chapter 3. Wife to husband, husband to wife. Holy lives, even those who persecute us. Holy lives in front of the world, even though they may persecute us. Holy lives in the body of Christ. And then also godliness. Peter speaks of godliness. Notice 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Notice also verse 6. We're to add to our faith knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and what? Godliness. In verse 7, godliness with brotherly kindness and affection and love. Godliness is really being mindful of God in all things. Worshiping God throughout the entire course of our lives in each day. That's how we're to wait. In holiness and godliness. But what are we to wait? For what are we to wait? He says there, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. We're to wait for the day of God. What does it mean to wait here? You see the word? Waiting for, hastening. What does it mean to wait? Well, it's an eager expectancy. Eager expectancy. Minds continually turning to the future while enduring the present evils around us and overcoming the evils within us by God's grace. You know, even yesterday in the, in the previous days as we were grieving with Gina and Joy and, and, and their family over Mike, how often did you find your mind looking ahead to the day when Christ will return? Oh, that's how we're to be constantly. That's how we survive life in this world. By looking ahead, waiting for that day. One commentator writes, the habitual expectation of the coming of the day of God is urged by Peter upon his brethren as being at once a characteristic mark of true Christianity and itself a most powerful motive to universal holiness. Maybe there is no, there's no more hopeful thought that drives us to holiness than the coming of Christ. As many texts that speak of this, 
1 Peter 1, 3-9. Oh, that glorious text. Just let your eyes glance on it. Look back to 1 Peter 1. <clears throat> Peter, with joy unspeakable, writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That imperishable inheritance. And we're being kept too. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for His salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Realize how precious it is to see your own heart yearn for the second coming of Christ in the midst of a trial. That's, that's uniquely Christian. That's a work of the Holy Spirit within you. When you say in the trial, oh, come Lord Jesus. Bring this all to a final conclusion that brings you glory and satisfies our hearts eternally. That's a unique Christian faith. So be encouraged if your mind moves there. That's what Peter is calling us to. Wait for the day of God. He speaks of it often. Second Peter or First Peter two twelve, First Peter two twenty three, First Peter four twelve and thirteen and verse nineteen, First Peter five four verses ten and eleven. The book of First and Second Peter, the letters here, are filled with anticipation of the second coming of Christ. It is, it, is the most, it is the greatest longing of the apostles, and certainly they wrote about it. How did you, and kids, you can join me in this thinking, how did you wait for Christmas Day this past year? Do you remember? Baking, buying, writing, planning, sending invitations, sending cards, cleaning, decorating, wrapping, inviting. There's so much anticipation that that moves right into Christmas Day, right? Do we feel that way and more for the coming of Christ? It's going to be a far greater gift than what we get on Christmas Day. We've already received Christ, and we will receive Him again when He returns. Hastening, waiting and hastening. The second verb here, earnestly desiring. That's what it means. You want something so bad, you say what? Hurry! Hurry up! I'm ready! Right? That's hastening. Urging, hastening on to accelerate this. See, as God's chosen people, we are to be His instruments in furthering the divine purpose. I'm not, we do not change God's timetable, but we are His instruments that He uses all in His sovereign work to move everything toward that day of His return. Waiting is not just an attitude. It is also an action in the New Testament. That's what 2 Peter 3.9 is about, right? We 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God, in His patience, is saving people. He is active while He is patient. He is saving people. He's bringing people, sinners like you and me, to repentance. Look at Matthew. Would you turn with me to Matthew 24? This is a very interesting clue about how we are to wait. Like I said, this is toward the end of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is prophesying about the future. I'm sorry, it's not toward the end. Right in the middle. Uh, Matthew 24, 14. Look at this. Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and what? And then the end will come. That is interesting, isn't it? It's like Jesus is making a connection between our evangelism and His coming. The proclamation of the Gospel through the church to all the nations, to every person whom God has chosen to deliver the Gospel to, and when that's all completed, what? The end will come. So hasten that day by what? Preaching the Gospel. Right? That's how God uses us in His sovereign plan to bring about the end. That's how we hasten. Preach the Gospel. Matthew 6.10 Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done. So we hasten the day by praying for the end. <laughs> praying for the Lord's return. Father, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. These are precious truths. That's how we hasten. Here's another quote from a commentary. Certainly, aggressive evangelism and believing intercession. Aggressive evangelism and believing intercession supported by the holy lives of His saints are divinely appointed means of furthering God's purpose and program. Isn't that a great statement? I want to read that again. Just get this. It's so, so good. Certainly, I didn't write it. That's why it's good. Certainly, aggressive evangelism and believing intercession supported by the holy lives of His saints are divinely appointed means of furthering God's purpose and program. So we're waiting in holiness and godliness. We're waiting for the day of God and hastening it. And we're waiting for the coming day of God. It says that right there in verse 12, for the day of God. Certainly, that is synonymous with the day of the Lord in the context. That final day of Christ's return where He comes to bring judgment and reward. God here emphasizes the divine nature of Christ. The coming One who is certainly God and will come to, to judge the world. That day will cause some things to happen. Notice verse 12. Because of which? Because of what? Because of the day of God. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Because of which? The destruction will not be the due course of natural processes. Now think about the implications of that. Because of the coming day of the Lord, the earth is going to burn. Not because of global warming or not because of 
the natural unfolding processes that we hear about all the time. It's by God's intervention that this is going to happen. So consider that. This section repeats verse 10 with some variation. There's going to be a supernatural intervention. We looked at verse 10. You can look back on it. I'm, I'm in Matthew still, so if you're there, you can turn, we can turn back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 10 speaks of the Lord coming like a thief, the heavens passing away with a roar, heavenly bodies being burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works d- exposed. And so the word dissolve there is again, the heavens will be set on fire, the text says. The heavenly bodies, elements, will melt as they burn. Peter introduces a new aspect here. It is the present verb, not just for dissolve, but notice, will melt. They will be dissolved. We talked about that. Loosing apart and melting as they burn certainly portrays the vivid reality of the coming of Christ and it is certainly synonymous with and part of the process of being dissolved that we've seen in verse 10 and 11 and 12. And notice the last part of it. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because of these things, because of the day of the Lord, the day of God, Heavens will be set on fire, dissolved. The heavenly bodies melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for, here we are waiting again, not just for the the undoing of the present as we know it, but the bringing in of this new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is a huge contrast here. But, this is one of those glorious words in the New Testament. It's not just going to be the destruction of all things, but the incoming of the new. This is the day that Peter's longing for. This is the day we long for. The new heavens and the new earth. Our hope is is assured with Jesus' promise. A new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah, this, this promise goes back to the new Old, Old Testament even. Isaiah chapter 65. Verse 17. For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's an interesting statement. How much will we remember? It says the former things will not be remembered or come into mind. Maybe that's the moment that we read about in Revelation 21 where God will wipe every tear from our eyes. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be there be in it an infant who do- lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses 
Let's see. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For, for like the days of a, tr- of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendant with them. Therefore, I will call, I will answer while they are yet speaking, and I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. 66, 22 and 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. In Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He shall dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God is going to make all things new. This is the day that we long for. Quality. New in quality is the idea here. New heavens, new earth, fresh, glorious, no trace of sin or evil. And that quality is certainly underscored by the word righteousness. Righteousness is no longer an alien or a foreigner. It is the common presence. It is the common quality of all things. All things will be in perfect agreement with the character of God. All things will be in perfect harmony with His will. All things will be a perfect reflection of His holy law. There will be a perfect reign of righteousness for the whole earth and heaven. Jesus will be the immediate 
physical, visible, reigning world ruler. That's going to be awesome. Doesn't your heart long for that? Oh, so many, so many times we can walk through life and find ourselves longing for the coming of the King. Now, because of these things, future assurances from Christ which demand present attitudes in us, that's what we're talking about, right? Future assurances from the promises of Christ which demand these present attitudes. He is coming. The new heaven and the earth is coming. So we live, we seek to live waiting, waiting in holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening. We've got to hold in our minds a tight link between these beliefs and our behavior. Our faith and our practice is so important. Your assurance and mindfulness of the future will have great influence on your life in the present. So then secondly, we are called to be not only waiting people, but diligent people. I think this, this study is going to take two weeks. Diligent people. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter comes to us in great love. Notice this. He says, Beloved. And since you're continuing to have this attitude of waiting with this eager expectancy about these things in the future, you can no longer then live idly. If you really believe what's coming, you can't live idly. Not anymore. You can't live indifferently. You can't live indecently. Diligent. We're to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. Isn't that what it says? Diligent to be found by Him, by Christ the Lord, without spot or blemish. Diligent means to be sharp and urgent in duty, to be eager and zealous to make every effort. To be found by Him certainly speaks of Christ's second coming judicial findings. To, to be diligent, to make certain. What this is, is really to be certain about your salvation. Are you in Christ? The only way that we can be found by Him without spot or blemish is how? If we have His righteousness. right? If we have His declared righteousness on our lives. That's the primary thing. To be diligent to make certain of your calling election. Does, does Peter ever call us to that? Yes, he does. Look at... Look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Just back a page or two. He exhorts us, verse 10, 2 Peter 1, Therefore, brothers, be all the more, what? Diligent, there's that same word, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What is, what is Peter saying there? If you are justified, if you are truly saved, your life will give evidence of it, right? You can't be someone who has God living in them that the evidence is not there. When God lives in someone by the Spirit, their life changes. It has to. It doesn't mean they're not going to struggle with sin. Of course they will. It doesn't mean they won't have seasons of rebellion, but there will be the evidence of change and growth and repentance and godly grief and trust in Christ and so on. 
a growth in holiness, a growth in godliness. That's why he talks of this um, this, this progression in verses 3 through 11 of 2 Peter 1. If you are in Christ, then you will be adding to your faith because God will be at work in you to add to your faith the virtues of Christ-likeness. So be diligent to make certain your calling and election. This is why I think a class like Fundamentals of the Faith is so important. It's one of the, our objectives is that we would invite those who are struggling with the assurance of their salvation to come and, and, and really prayerfully dig in and ask God to give them assurance that they belong to Christ. That's a command from us to make sure, from, from Peter to us to be certain of our calling election. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. To be diligent to be pursuing assurance that we are in Christ and we have his righteousness. But also, certainly out of that, to be diligent to see your justification proven by your sanctification and demanding your glorification. These are the important aspects of being found by Him without spot or blemish. Are you certain that you're justified? Are you certain of that? And are you certain, do you see, do you see in your life a diligent pursuit to grow in Christ's likeness that is proving that you're justified? That's what Peter is calling us to here. But also he says there be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, but also what? At peace. And this is partly to say the same thing over again in a different way. Be diligent to be found by Him at peace. What, what are we talking about, Peter? Well, certainly peace with God. Are you at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been what justified by faith, by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only Christ, His righteous life, His atoning death, that can reconcile any sinner to God and bring a peace in the relationship between God and sinners. Do you have that peace? Because you are justified. Because you are trusting in Christ's saving work alone. Certainly, be diligent to be found at peace with God. Be diligent to be found at peace with others. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. I mean, if we're at peace with God, and we have so sinned against God, and yet He's brought us into a relationship with peace, of peace with Himself through the sacrifice of His Son, we can also be at peace with one another. That's something that we're to be diligent about. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of like Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's something that requires activity and diligence. That's something Peter's calling us to as we anticipate the Lord's return. Maybe also then, peace with current events. Why should we be anxious when we know the Lord is coming soon? Peace with regards to the future. The Lord is coming. We can be at peace because of Christ. And so because of the future day of the Lord, we're to be waiting diligently. And then we'll pick up here next week. Thirdly, we're to be a waiting people, a diligent people, and thirdly, accounting people. Oh, this is all because of the certain day of God. Are you longing for that day? Are you waiting 
for the coming of the Lord? Are you diligent about it, pursuing it, and being at peace with Christ and with one another? If you're not in Christ this morning, there's no way you can truly wait for the coming of the Lord. Are you a believer? Are, you, are your sins forgiven? Are you trusted in Christ? Because if not, then that day of Christ's coming is probably a terror to you or something you don't want to think about at all. You see, here, here's the fact of the matter. When an unbeliever considers the coming of the Lord, if you will bow your knee at the foot of the cross now, receiving Christ's salvation by faith, you will not need to bow your knee at the foot of His judgment when He returns. But it's one or the other. Because in the end, Paul writes, every knee will bow, right? And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So think about that, that, those two options. You will either bow the knee now at the cross and claim Him as Savior and Lord, or he will bow the knee when he returns under his judgment. I long for you to know Christ today so that when he returns, you will rejoice and be glad at his return. Let's stand together and let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we walk through this text, thinking about your return, it's so fitting for us and, and I hope comforting for us and yet compelling. Make us people who are mindful of your return so that we may have the strength to endure difficulties now because we have a joy unspeakable that is yet to come. And Father, if there is, is someone here that does not yet know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that the truth of his return will compel them to surrender to him today as Savior and Lord that they would confess their sin, their worthiness of your judgment, just like the rest of us, that they would cry out to you asking that you would clothe them in the righteousness of Christ and carry away their sins by the cross. Work this in the heart of the one who yet needs this salvation. And Father, may those of us who are Your children already, may we continue to rejoice in the Gospel. May we rejoice in Christ's return and live accordingly, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.